Welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host. It's great to be with you here this morning. It's morning here in the States for me as I'm recording this, but it's the afternoon for my guest. My guest today is Calvin Robinson. He is a deacon in the Free Church of England. He's also the host of the Common Sense Crusade on GB News, which airs Saturday over in the UK. Calvin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Not a problem. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Calvin, I've been seeing a lot of your stuff on, I think, Twitter is where I first came across some of your stuff, and I was very surprised. Anytime I see a good conservative pastor over in the UK, I'm, I'm uh, very glad because that is where our heritage comes from as right. Protestants, or at least my family, uh, who migrated over here on the Elizabeth in 1636 as a Puritan wow. uh, migrant. So I'm always glad to see good uh, men in the UK standing up for the truth of God's word. And so the first thing I wanted to do, because I've read some of your stuff on your Substack, I've seen some clips from your show, I saw your debate at the Oxford Union, I wanted to hear some of your story. I think we're about the same age, but I wanted to hear kind of your background, how you became a Christian, were you raised in the church, those kind of things. So can you tell, tell our audience maybe how you came to know Christ as Lord? Sure. Um, yeah, I was raised more or less Christian, uh, culturally Christian, as most people are in England these days. Um, went to Church of England schools, which used to be fairly good. And, you know, at least in my day, we still had the Lord's Prayer and hymns in assembly. In fact, I remember my uh, primary school headmaster reading from C.S. Lewis. I, I love that. It's one of my fondest memories because he just used to get uh, the book, get Narnia and just read it to us. Uh, we don't have any of that these days. It's all, it's got to be fancy PowerPoints and stuff, and it's got to be woke literature. So it's, it's, it's a good memory. Um, but I didn't really come to know Christ until much, much later. I was on a journey. I mean, we're all on a journey, but I was exploring and searching. I didn't know who or what I was searching for, but I was searching for the truth, I suppose. And I came to know Christ through the Eucharist, um, which was a novelty for me. It was something very, very, a, a very new and different experience. And I, I just realized that I had centered my life around that. And it was, it was the most important thing in the world. And I've spent every, all the time since then learning more, um, praying more, and trying to do just that, center my life around the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life. It's fantastic. And was that when you were a teenager or when did that happen? No, no, that was this um, much later. Uh, when I started teaching, well, I was a school teacher um, and I worked in Church of England schools and we started our week in church on a Monday morning, all the school, well, nearly all the school. There wasn't quite enough room in the church for all the school, but nearly all the school met in the church. And it just set everyone up for, for, the, for the week. And it's a good, good place to be, a good place to get in the right mentality and to focus, to zoom out, to focus on something or someone greater than yourselves. And I think it was, it was a great school and it was a great way to do things. And it, it intrigued me. I was like, this is, this is, I like this. So I started going to the church on Sundays and it's a, a very Anglican church. Um, so it was a Holy Communion service on a Sunday and I, I encountered Christ through the Eucharist. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit and I thought this is important and I didn't understand the theology. I didn't understand the, what the liturgy was all about, but I knew that this was going to be my life going forward. And so I entered a, a catechism group and started studying. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's fantastic. 
in the Anglican tradition, I think for some of my listeners, I'm a, a pastor who is non-denominational, which one of my friends jokes is just a, a more completed Baptist. And so most non-denominational churches in the United States are essentially <laughs> Baptist. But for uh, for most of them, some of them will do ba- uh, communion um, maybe once a month, uh, maybe once a quarter. I grew up in a church where we did it once a quarter. But in the Anglican church, is communion every week, the Eucharist every week? Well, it depends. So I'm high church. I would celebrate mass every day. Um, I'm not a priest yet. I'm only a deacon, so I don't have that option. Uh, but certainly when I was in Oxford, that's what we did. We had morning prayer, mass, then we'd have our week work day, and then we'd have evening prayer to close the day. So everything was centered around prayer. Um, but the traditions differ depending on how up or down the candle you go. The parish that I'm in right now celebrates um, a Holy Communion service once a month, usually the first Sunday of the month. Uh, I find that far too rare um, for something so important. I think weekly is generally the average across the country. Okay, excellent. And when you entered into ministry, when you kind of entered into this, I guess, career vocation uh, transition, you you were leaving teaching and you entered into ministry. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. so I became a school teacher and I spent a good while doing that. And I um, exceeded at it and I excelled at it. I thought it was fantastic. Education is certainly a passion of mine, but I realized very quickly that it was not the entirety of my vocation, just a part of my vocation, you know. As, as a as a priest uh, or, or as a ordained minister, our vocation consists of teaching, but also the sacramental ministry. And I realized that that was the large chunk that I was missing that I had to address. So I discerned my calling and the, the church uh, affirmed that, that discernment of my calling and sent me off to seminary. Excellent. And you were part of the Church of England, and from what I understand, you're part of the Free Church of England now. Can you help me understand, and maybe my listeners understand, what are the differences between those two churches? <laughs> yeah, so from an American perspective, I'm part of the REC now. Uh, so the Free, the Free Church of England is also known as the Reformed Episcopal Church. We are the, the REC of England, or the United Kingdom, essentially. Um, and to people that aren't familiar with that terminology, it's we're under the GAFCON umbrella, so we're Orthodox Anglicans. We're in communion with 85% of Anglicans around the world, but we are not a part of the Church of England, uh, the state body of the church. We are separate. Although our orders are valid and recognized by the Church of England, which is quite unique in that ministers from the Free Church of England can minister in the Church of England and vice versa. I quite often get C of E priests to come and uh, administer, the, administer the sacraments in my church. Okay, excellent. And can you provide maybe some some insight into recently there was, I think in the last six months, GAFCON, there was a kind of some African bishops or some some uh, priest or whoever it was in that uh, communion either kicked out or disfellowshipped or had a parting of the ways with someone in the Church of England. Is that correct? Could you help me understand what's going on there? Um, there's a lot going on in, in the Church of England in that obviously since they've said they're going to bless same-sex unions and they've gone as explicitly as saying some of which were sexual in nature, there seems to be a call that the Church of England has entered apostasy by blessing what God calls sin and, and abhorrent and therefore trying to create order out of something disorderly or, or just asking bless, God to bless something that he said he won't just doesn't make much sense logically, never mind theologically. But the... the the whole thing's a mess. So some people are leaving the Church of England and looking for other denominations or other umbrellas to fall under. Um, some people are trying to remain within and call for um, change from within. 
all of us that were asking for the Church of England to repent and to recenter back on Christ and on the scriptures. Um, but as far as I'm not sure which particular instance you talk about uh, of people leaving or being denounced or whatever, but there's there's lots and lots going on and it's all very crazy. It's going to take a long time for it to settle. Right. Um, part of what you provide commentary on and what I enjoy about what you say is how you're just trying to represent the Christian faith and pass it down as we've had it for thousands of years. And it's always so surprising when I speak up on these matters. And uh, of course, as a, as a human, I can do better or worse in far, as far as my, my tone or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, all we're trying to do is represent the Christian faith in, in the historic sense, in the biblical sense, in the scriptural sense. And yet that seems to make people want to light their hair on fire and they can't stand that. And so I really appreciate the work you're doing over there. One of the questions I had with kind of the common sense crusade, your work as a deacon, um, you're obviously kind of a self-described conservative as far as how you approach not just scriptural matters, but also kind of social matters. And so I was curious to know, was that always something growing up in Church of England schools, growing up in a in your family, was that always something you were inclined to? Or did that change over time where you became more kind of self-described conservative? Yeah, that's good. Um, in answer to your first points, thank you. And um, we're just trying to talk about what has been mostly understood by most people most of the time, right? That's that's the faith that's been, you know, the faith wants delivered to the saints. We're trying to maintain that tradition. Um, that's what apostolic succession is about. That's what the Catholicity is, the, the faith is about. It's about not being novel, not trying to reinvent things, but just trying to maintain the faith that we have. And it's, it's bizarre that some people don't want to do that. Uh, but in terms of have I always been conservative? Uh, no, no, I was, quite, I was quite liberal, actually, as a youth. I think most people are when they're young. And I think the change came for me when I wanted to center my life around my faith and live my faith and let my faith dictate every element and every aspect of my life, including my politics. And that for me is why I'm conservative. It's not um, a political choice. It's it's the faith is conservative, you know, in, in modern standards, at least think ideas like marriage being between one man and one woman that well, that was quite scandalous at the time. And it's quite it's, it just seems to be scandalous again now. But for, for 2000 years, it's, it's been pretty much accepted. But for me, it's about sticking to what we know to be true, rather than what society tells us we have to uh, abide by. Yeah, and I, I've tried to educate people at my church on that, because I've said in the past, I've said, you know, Christianity is, is this other thing. It's not on a spectrum of left versus right, conservative and liberal. And there may be some truth to that. But what I've started to try to say to the people at my church is, look, if you hold these beliefs that the, the Bible's the inerrant word of God, that mm -hmm. marriage is between one man and woman, one woman, what do you think you're going to get labeled as today? You're going to get labeled as a conservative. So you may not like that. You may not, you know, wear it on your shirt or something like that in, in a, a liberal place like Boulder, but you have to be comfortable with the fact that Christianity in our modern context uh, is a, conserv a conservative faith. It, it is what it is. And you just kind of have to embrace that. Um, on your Common Sense Crusade show, I'm curious, do you get into political matters, social matters? What's kind of the big emphasis there for you when you're thinking about what am I going to talk about this Saturday? Oh, yeah, everything. Um, I I feel very strongly that this platform has been gifted me for, for his work, for his ministry. So I try to use it to proclaim the gospel, but also to speak the truth. So that means sometimes 
we're covering religious topics. Sometimes they're uh, very secular topics, but we always, I always at least try to address them from a Christian perspective. So it's current events from a faith perspective. Um, last week I did my, so I start with a monologue and then I have four other segments. My monologue last week was on abortion because we've just had a case in the UK where a woman has been arrested for aborting her child at eight months. Mm. Um, even for the UK, that's two to three months over the legal limit. Um, and I think it's just absolutely disgusting. So we, I started off by opening on that because many people have been protesting. Um, well, the mainstream media has been protesting, but also people have been out on the streets protesting, saying that this is a case that we need to decriminalize abortion because someone's been arrested for having an abortion. It's like, no, they've been arrested for uh, breaking the abortion limit and for breaking the law. And if we have a limit, then we have to abide by it. Otherwise, what's the point in having laws if you, you, know, you can just do what you want? But um, so I, I pick the topics that I think are important uh, based on the, on, on the Christian values and then try and work around that. Yeah. We, I recently read an article of a, a um, abortion, if you want to call him doctor, um, I wouldn't, but in Boulder who, uh, he's been performing third trimester abortions for decades here in our city. Um, very disturbing article. I'll put a link to that in the show notes It's from the Atlantic. It's an interview with Warren Hearn and he's out here and he's, uh, it's very sad. It's very sad what's been happening in my town it's just uh, wicked. for a long time. And my wife is eight months pregnant right now. And so just to hear that, you know, it's it's very disturbing yeah. uh, to hear that. I'm curious. I mean, I know people that have been born that, pr premature prior to eight months. And they're, they're very good people. It's like the idea that this is a point where you can just, even for, even for people that believe in abortion as a choice, even for them, this is too extreme. Right. Agreed. Um, as far as one topic I had, I had some interest in that I wanted to hear your perspective on, mm -hmm. in the United States, we have uh, an interesting border situation on the southern border. I'm originally from Texas, so I'm always kind of tuned in to the, to the news Texas. there and the, the migrants there and, and the immigrants there. Um, I have family that lives near the border, and so they deal with this kind of thing. And on the one hand, they're, you know, they feel sympathetic to the plight of people who are looking for a better life. But on the other hand, they know that they're breaking the law many times. And so I'm curious, how, how, what does it look like with immigration in specifically the UK? I know it's kind of a debate all over in France and Sweden and all over Europe, mm. but what does the immigration debate look like in the UK right now? All right. The immigration debate is awful. We have this year, we're going to have 1 million net migration. That's just an unprecedented number. It's ridiculous. We don't have the space. We don't have the resources. We don't have the capacity. Um, people can't afford to eat. They're choosing between heating their homes and eating at the moment because the, the financial crisis that we're in is so dire. And at the same time, schools are full, hospitals are full, and we have so much migration. So we have to look at why. And a lot of it is illegal immigration. A lot of it is people entering the country illegally from France, uh, coming over the, the very short sea, the Channel Tunnel, uh, coming over the Channel Sea into uh, Great Britain. And there are legal routes. If people, if someone is a genuine refugee with a genuine asylum claim, they can cross over legally and seek asylum. So it's the people that don't want to do that. And what's happening is we've got these people smugglers who are earning a earning a living off smuggling people over, and it's a crime syndicate. And people are dying in this in this. You know, they're using dodgy dinghies to get over, not boats or ships. Uh, it, so it's, it's first of all, it, it, it's people are, people's lives are at risk, but secondly, there's criminal activity and it's all being supported because we want to be seen as kind. And of course we should be welcoming to people, 
if they are seeking asylum, if they are genuine refugees, we should have a process in place, which we do, to to judge that and judge that criteria appropriately. But we shouldn't have open, we don't have open borders. Borders are God ordained. Nations and tribes are God ordained. And if we don't protect our borders, we're not protecting our people. And that's our, that's the government's first priority to protect its borders and protect its people before anything else. So our government is letting us down. But it's all because of this lefty liberal idea that why should we have borders? Who, who are we to say that people aren't welcome to come here? It's like, well, if we don't, then the whole thing, idea of nations falls apart and um, we, the whole world will implode. Unless you're proposing like some kind of communist one world government, which is, again, an idea I don't want any part in. It's anti-Christian. But the solution is to, first of all, fix the nations uh, or help support people in their own nations to, to, to build rather than just fleeing. But secondly, to protect our, our borders and to make sure that there are safe routes for people that do need to, to cross. Yeah, and in the United States, we have a lot of evangelical leaders who I think maybe six years ago, they signed a statement on um, you know how we deal with immigration as Christians. And it was a lot of leftist kind of terminology. And so how do you help people understand when we read passages, either in the Old Testament or other places, where God talks about taking care of the stranger that's in your midst, being kind to those who are there, uh, caring for the refugee, all this kind of stuff. You'll hear kind of the parroted slogan is that Jesus was a refugee, which is a fallacy when you understand the the context of the Roman Empire and where he was actually migrating to in Egypt. But how do you help people understand and move away from that kind of, really, it's a, it's a widespread misnomer of how we think about borders, nations, and caring for the the immigrant, the stranger, the refugee. How do you educate people biblically on those matters? Well, I mean, you can you can read the passages on on nations and tribes and, and why nations exist and how they are God ordained. But then you can also say, yes, we do want to help the sojourner. We do want to help the traveler and the refugee. Of course, we do. But then just go back to we don't want to encourage people to break the law and we don't want to encourage people smugglers and, and death and travesty. So we want to do it in a, an appropriate legal way. I don't see, I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, but it's just these are ideas that people latch onto and just want to say, well, if you're a Christian, then you have to be for open borders. Like, no, actually, I don't think that's true at all. Um, there are better ways to help people. And if we want to be, if we want to be in a position where we can help third world countries, then we have to be prosperous ourselves. And, and that means we do have to prioritize our family first. And I think that is quite a Christian message, as, as selfish as it sounds, in order to, you know, it's, it's an argument against communism, because in order to provide charity, you have to accumulate, you have to accumulate wealth to distribute, to distribute wealth, you cannot distribute what you don't have, otherwise it's theft. And the Ten Commandments, two of which are very pro private property. Absolutely. I think one of the, the illustrations that always comes out to me, and it really shook me when I became a husband and a father, is the same logic that's used against borders, the open borders argument, uh, would make my home a disaster <laughs> in terms of if we followed that principle uh, that they they try to cajole us into believing and twist the scriptures to, to make us believe, mm. then I would never lock my door. I would never close my door of my home. And my food would not be my own. It's everyone's food. And my own family would be destitute because you're asking me to do something and, and not take care of my family, which the scriptures say would make me worse than an unbeliever. And yes. so I think many Christians today in our modern context, our modern world have been duped on this matter. And it's really sad to see. So I'm glad you're, you're uh, speaking up on those matters because it's a big deal in our world today as really a lot of people are advocating for open borders. I'm curious with um, 
with your speech at Oxford Union, that debate, that's a kind of a big, big stage in my mind. Uh, I've seen a lot of those debates. And so what was that like for you going into Oxford to uh, to be part of that debate? Uh, <laughs> it wasn't very pleasant. It wasn't something I um, particularly wanted to do. Um, the atmosphere wasn't very nice, uh, but we're called to speak the truth. We're called to proclaim the gospel, and someone had to defend uh, the Christian teaching on these issues. And they, I got the call, and they, therefore I went and did it. Uh, I'd do it again, but like I said, I didn't enjoy it, and it wasn't pleasant in the moment. It wasn't pleasant afterwards. And I, from what I understand, uh, the kind of aftermath of that was uh, there's a they vote on who won the debate. And I think the uh, the other side won the debate. What was the other side arguing for in this case? Oh, the arguments were atrocious. Um, we should allow the blessing of same-sex marriages or the church supports same-sex marriage within the church because we already ignore the Bible in terms of women's ordination and in terms of contraception, in terms of divorce. So why... So we should also ignore the Bible on this. I'm like, no, that's the, you're making my argument for me. We should stop ignoring the Bible on these issues and we should stop ignoring it on this too. Like we should stick to the Bible on all of this stuff. Either it's God breathed or it's not, right? Uh, the arguments were lame, very, very lame. You know, love is love was used quite a bit. And I really? I detest that term. It's all about breaking down boundaries, isn't it? That's what it is. That's, that's the enemy's standpoint. It has been since day one of Genesis. It's breaking down boundaries because it, the enemy knows that we need boundaries because boundaries are loving. And it's the same with the argument we were just talking about with immigration, like getting rid of boundaries. Boundaries help us. Boundaries support us. Boundaries are loving. Without boundaries, everything's a mess and disorderly. And God likes order. The enemy likes disorder. Amen. The, uh, the interesting thing, you know, I was reflecting on your speech last night and prep for our show today and reading to Matthew 10, where uh, Jesus says not to worry about, you know, what you're going to say and the Holy spirit will, will give you words. And I was really inspired when, you know, you really, in your delivery, in your portion of the debate, you, you emphasized this is a very serious matter. Uh, you kind of upped the ante up the conversation because normally these debates, they are lively. They're, they're fun to watch. But these are very serious matters that are being debated. And not only that, but you, you, you didn't just call say that they were wrong. You said that they needed to repent and believe mm. the good news of Jesus Christ, believe mm. the scriptures. And I just so enjoyed that. What, what's kind of been the fallout from that? Would you, do you think you'll be invited back to Oxford Uni never? Or what do you think uh, <laughs> people thought after, after your delivery? Um, I don't know if I'll be invited back, but uh, the aftermath was interesting because the student newspapers were writing, how dare we invite this bigot to Oxford to have this debate? You know, we should, some things are beyond the pale. This person's beyond the pale. This topic is beyond the pale. It's like, okay, well, you do understand that the vast majority of people agree with me and this is because I'm speaking the truth and it's not my opinion. It's, it's biblical. Um, but yeah, I wasn't trying to be entertaining. I wasn't trying to be charismatic. I wasn't trying to put on a performance. I was just trying to speak the God-given truth as we, as it has been revealed to us through the scriptures. And I think that was, that was important. Yeah. And I think, uh, at least 41 people seem to, uh, to side with your side <laughs> of the debate, which but is that was it as well. Like I, I thought I was there to speak to the people in the room 
and I tried my best and I thought I'd failed in that regard. But of course, I wasn't there to speak to the people in the room. I was there to speak to a wider audience, which has been revealed since. You know, we don't always get this big picture of why we, we are where we are and why we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. But we try to do it anyway. Something that's interesting in the American context that I'm, I'm wondering if it could be true in, in your context as well is that uh, in recent years, people are becoming more conservative. Uh, not a lot. And it's not like a a wave or anything like that, but at least statistically based on what they're seeing demographically is people actually are turning away from, uh, at least by a few percentage points, uh, either gay marriage or other issues are becoming more conservative. Are you seeing any signs of that kind of stuff happening over there? We're seeing that the younger generation isn't binge drinking as much. We have a big binge drink culture over here. Obviously, we can drink from 18, but that means you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds tend to start drinking, uh, so we're much earlier than you guys. Um, but the younger generation isn't as interested in that. And I think we're seeing uh, a change in attitudes to sexual ethics as well, in that we've had generation after generation since the 60s of people just sleeping around and you know, just general debauchery, and it's led to loneliness and un unhappiness as we could have predicted. But we're seeing that as a result of that, that younger people are more conservative in that regard too, and they're being more selective and waiting longer, which is good. But we're not yet seeing people returning to marriage at a young age. So the two aren't marrying up yet, uh, if you, excuse my pun, and that needs, to, that needs to be resolved because that is how we fix the situation that we're in. You know, get married young, start a family, raise them with Christian values. That is how we win this spiritual war that we are in. Amen. One of the things that's interesting about your position as a deacon in the Free Church of England, and you'll have to just pardon my ignorance on this, that's but fine. I'm curious. One of the things that was funny when, when Kim and I moved to Boulder, we were already married. She would meet a lot of people from a Catholic background. Yeah. And uh, and so a lot of her coworkers would be like, so you and your husband, you guys can't have sex. You guys, <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be married because he's a pastor, right? And so I'm curious in the Free Church of England and the Church of England, what does it look like for a priest to become married? Oh yeah, it's perfectly normal, perfectly ordinary, accepted. Um, the the Catholic bar on marriage, well, it's actually a, a, a tradition of celibacy. is is um, It is just that it is a tradition, and it's it's one that the church hasn't always had, uh, might not always have going forward. If you look at what's happening in the synod of synodality in the Roman Catholic Church, but yeah, within the Church of England, um, since it's since its um, separation from Rome, we have allowed our priests to marry, and that is the same in the Free Church of England. Um, yeah, there's no okay. requirement of celibacy because some people are called to celibacy, some people are called to marriage, and just because you're called to the priesthood doesn't necessarily mean you're called to celibacy. And I think that's probably been a part of some of the issues that we've seen. Right. Uh, if you if you would, I, I'd love to talk about kind of the Anglo-Catholic. I think that's how. Would you describe yourself as Anglo-Catholic? Oh, yeah. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. What What does that look like, and how is it maybe different than how other people would conceive themselves as simply Anglican? You, you kind of position yourself as Anglo-Catholic. Help me understand what that means and how, how maybe it's unique. Yes, just think Catholicism without the Pope. <laughs> we, during the Reformation, we split from papal authority. That was the first, one of the first points of the English Reformation with Henry VIII. I mean, we didn't separate our church from the Catholic Church until Elizabeth I when she was excommunicated. So there were, what, 35 years between removing papal authority and becoming so-called Protestant, but we've always maintained our Catholicity and the Catholic faith. And Anglicanism is the English expression of the Catholic faith, right? Uh, as in big C Catholic, the universal Christian faith. 
we not we are I don't see us as Protestant in the same way that perhaps Protestants on the continent were, as in Luther Lutheranism and Calvinism. It was very much an quite often in a lot of these areas it became an anti-Catholic movement. Whereas for us in England, it was about removing ourselves from the the political and legal authority of Rome, which had become corrupt. And also, and, but there were obviously theological reasons. You know, there was a lot of error and superstition that we wanted to rid ourselves of too. But it was about recentering ourselves, reforming uh, the, the faith, and hence Reformation, um, on the, the church fathers and go back to the apostles and go back to the, the faith as once delivered. And for me, it was about redirecting us to a future that is founded in the past rather than inventing something new, which I tend to think Protestantism t likes to be sometimes. So Anglo-Catholicism is about how do we do that more boldly? How do we, you know, some some people on the more Protestant end of the Anglican church will be, what, we've got to be anti-Catholic? And it's like, well, no, we are not going to throw the baby away with bathwater. We want to stick to the things that are true, beautiful, and good from the from the Catholic tradition whilst remaining Anglican in the in the way of via media and that a lot of that is down to how we worship you know our liturgical style our vestments and our appreciation for the regularity of the sacraments and are there a lot of people in the free church of england that would also describe themselves as anglo-catholic in the free church of england no probably not no okay the free so church of england is, is very small and uh i'm 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 an anomaly anomaly in it um <laughs> There aren't any Anglo-Catholics, as far as I know, outside of the Church of England. The Church of England has a stranglehold on Anglicanism in this country. There aren't many Anglicans outside of the Church of England yet. It's a growing, the GAFCON movement is growing here, but it's very much in its infancy. Okay. When you think about Catholic theology, from what I understand, and I didn't grow up Catholic, so it's just from learning and, and being friends with Catholics, but they have a very sacramental view of how we receive grace, grace is infused. And you need to continue to go to Mass and uh, partake in the Eucharist and uh, go to confession, do all these things. And that is part of the way you, in a way, earn grace. How maybe would your view either uh, comport with that, like uh, you would agree with that, and how would your view differ from that? I wouldn't see it as a way of earning grace, but I would agree with the rest of what you said in that we, are, we receive grace through our baptism. And we receive grace through the sacraments and we are encouraged to partake in the sacraments as often as possible, particularly the Eucharist, because that's when we're closest to Christ. And why wouldn't we want to be as close to Christ as we possibly can? It's not about earthly merit. It's not about earning anything. It's about joining him in his body, the church, um, through the methods that he instituted. Okay. And as a deacon in the Free Church of England is the... Is it a track? Is that like a stepping stone to become a priest one day? Is that correct? So I'm tr I'm a transitional deacon, yeah. So I will be probably priested at some point quite soon. Um, I, I'm not a permanent deacon. Okay, gotcha. But and very good it, thing. I think we need more of them. Does that allow I, you to deliver a message every week, or what does that look like? Oh yeah, yeah. So I preach every week. Um, I lead morning prayer as our main service, and I get priests in to celebrate Holy Communion uh, at least once a month. Um, so this, the reason I'm not a permanent deacon is because I believe I feel called to administer the sacraments as part of my ministerial duties. So I, at some point, will be celebrating Holy Communion with my church. Okay, excellent. And then, what does it look like to become in the Free Church of England? What does it look like to become a priest? Like, what do you have to go through? What do you have to do to become a priest? Um, 
I had to do some what they call papers. So I, I sat a couple of exams. Uh, I had to go to a bishop's advisory panel, which is something that um, so it's very different from the CV. In the CV, I set up a BAP, a bishop's advisory panel, uh, on my dis in my discernment process, and they, they they discern whether they think you're called to the priesthood at that point. So I'd already sat one previously, but I've sat one of them again, and I passed the papers and the BAP unanimously. So the next step is uh, it's all at the discretion of the bishop. All of it. Um, so the bishop has um, agreed that I've passed all the steps, so to speak. Um, pragmatic steps as, as well as theological steps and now the next step is to lay his hands on me and ordain me and we just have to set a date and i'll, I'll put it on my social media when it's happening that's great news congratulations for thank that you, i was i was curious because uh, a lot of times from people i've talked to over there the bishops because it's it's done that way it depends on which either parish or, or who you're connected with because if you're conservative and you get in that room, sometimes they can block you from uh, from moving forward. Has that ever been a concern of yours since you are so uh, kind of vocal on social matters and, and conservative politics and these kind of things? Yeah, I mean, they can use time as a weapon, as the Church of England did with me. You know, they did, they blocked my ordination, my original ordination to the, to the diaconate. Um, but not by saying, look, we're not going to ordain you, but just by using p politics, essentially, uh, as a mechanism and using time as a weapon. So, yeah, I've had it a first-hand experience, but I see it a lot. Uh, but generally speaking, within the, the state church, you're a deacon for a year and then you're priesthood. But in total, you have roughly, excuse me, three years as a curate, so as an assistant priest. Uh, so the first year as a deacon and two years as a, as a priest, but under a different an incumbent um, and that that method seems to work generally speaking okay for everyone because because it's expected so if they do t try to block it, it it becomes clear that they're doing something that, it, that it's, it's obvious but there's no there's um, no i mean everything's at a bishop's discretion so there's no real policy or procedure anywhere in the church uh, which is has its pros and cons yeah that, that's very interesting um kind of going back to the immigration question um, I'm curious to know more about your, your family. Uh, from what I've read and from what I understand, were your family immigrants to the UK? Is that right? So my, my father's family were. Um, my mother's family have been here as far back as we can trace, um, always in England. Uh, my father's family were from, his parents were from Jamaica. So they came over during Windrush in the 1950s uh, when the British um, said we need more workers and people from the colonies are welcome to come and join the homeland and my grandparents were like, yeah, it sounds good. And, uh, they became fully British and celebrated, integrated. And, uh, yeah, my, my mother and my father were a mixed marriage. Okay. And when you think about your position and they hear about kind of who you are, what you're doing, I'm curious because, you know, one of the sources of comfort in this life for me has been my family, uh, my parents who are proud of me, who are glad when uh, when the local paper writes an op-ed, uh, you know, slandering me for standing up for, for Christian stuff. And, and I hear about all sorts of hatred out there about me. My parents are a great source of encouragement and support. And uh, and so I'm curious to know what your family is like in terms of your parents and your relationship with them. Oh, yeah, they're, they are my rock, my, my family. They're amazing. Um, not just my parents, but my sister, my nieces as well. Love them all to bits. They're very encouraging, very supportive. Um, I don't think it's easy on them when they see the negative press that I get. 
but they're always there for me and they encourage me and they, they love when they see the, the positive press. So, yeah. That's great. What is it? Uh, because you have a bigger platform, I am curious, kind of closing out the interview here. What is it like when you see that negative press out there? Uh, maybe Sky News or uh, the BBC has has written something. I have no idea. Uh, how do you how do you make make sense of that? Because when you're in the midst of it, it can be very intimidating, scary. It can make you maybe not uncertain in your beliefs, but almost like people are watching me, that kind of thing. What is it like when you process that kind of stuff? And how do you move forward in, in faith in Christ when you feel it's like you, the world is against you? It's usually quite sad because you see them for what they are. So whenever there's an article um, that says something negative about me, or you know, sometimes they're outright character assassinations, they're never truthful. They're always half-truths or they twist things or they put a slant on things. And you can, obviously being the person they're writing about, you can see straight through it. So it makes you realize how poorly... Uh, or how much a uh, lack of professional journalism there is out there. And it questions everything. You make you question everything. You, you think, you know, if they're writing this about me, what are they writing about things that I don't know about and people that I don't know about? And there's a bias on everything. So it's really sad because it opens your eyes. But, you know, you just have to water off a duck's back at some point. The more they do it, the, the less it hits you. But even that is a risk. So you have to, you know, you have to be careful of your own, uh, one has to be careful of one's own sins and not falling into those traps. But yeah, it's not nice. But then, of course, for every negative comment, there are 10 positive comments. The problem with human beings is that we focus on the negative. So that negative comment is going to stick out more than the, the, the 10 nice co comments. But it's about trying to find some balance in that and remembering that it actually it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about, you know, for everything that we, we do should be for the great glory of God. And if we continue to do that, the rest of it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think in your your speech at Oxford Union, you actually, was it a quote from St. Athanasius or who was it a quote <laughs> from where it's like, if I'm against the world, well, how does the quote go? If the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. Yeah, that's, that's how I ended it because I think that's so apt. You know, St. Athanasius was a deacon as well and he uh, went in there amongst all the authorities and pretty much they were like, well, the world thinks this, so we should get with the times. And he was like, well, if the world is against the truth, then I'm against the world. And it feels like we're, not much has changed since then. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how a lot of things that uh, Augustine or Athanasius or these other men were writing about in church history, uh, it's very similar to today. And so I think Christians can take a lot of courage from that. I think Christians can take a lot of courage from listening to the content you provide because you're obviously uh, being bold over there, uh, speaking the truth. Uh, if people wanted to hear more of your content, maybe subscribe to something, sign up for something, where could people go to keep up with you and hear more of the, the stuff you're putting out? Yeah, thank you. Um, they can go to calvinrobinson.com. I've got links to all my social media and my sub stack and everything on there. And of course, tune into GB, New GB News on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Uh, British summertime. Excellent. Well, Calvin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My absolute pleasure. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you give it a great review, subscribe on YouTube, uh, leave it a five-star rating, and share this episode with a friend. I recorded this podcast, as I record every episode, to spark good Christian conversations that heighten the discourse, that make us go deeper in our Christian faith. And so share this episode with a friend so that they can be encouraged, they can stand fast, they can uh, be against the world, so to speak, as long as we're on the side of truth. And so thank you so much for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time.